I'm going to be doing tonight, uh, I'm going to be doing an uh, introduction to the book of James. So, I uh, decided to take a break from prophecy for a little bit. Um, I actually do have a couple prophecy subjects that I'm wanting to cover uh, in the next weeks, but um, I just kind of felt like taking a break from it. So, we're going to go through, uh, start going through the book of James. We'll probably do some of the book of James on Sunday. Uh, we're not going to do it all just on Wednesday, so we'll probably get through this pretty quick, but um, there's definitely some things that I wanted to cover, but as I was uh, studying for this, I realized I kind of needed to take a week to just kind of introduce some facts about the book of James before kind of going verse by verse through it, and I think this will really be a help because James is another one of those books that has, um, you know, a lot of false teaching is surrounding it, and I'm learning more and more why people say some of the weird things they do about books like Hebrews and James and stuff. And it's, you know, dispensationalism. Once again, you know, dispensationalism is destroyed by actually what's taught in Hebrews and James. Whenever you get to some of these scriptures that seem problematic with our doctrine, you know, the dispensationalists, they just turn to their dispensational nonsense to try to answer for these things. But actually, if you dig deep and you actually study and see what it's actually teaching, you're going to find out that dispensationalism goes out the window. And so that's why they shove a lot of this weird stuff down your throat. But I'm going to show you some things tonight that I think is really going to help you because I'm here today to tell you that the book of James is for us. All right? The book of James is not a tribulation epistle. All right, now just think about how stupid that is. If the book of James was a tribulation epistle, meaning... You know, this is something that's for, you know, the end times. You know, then basically this book was written for a group for seven, you know, that's just good for seven years. And what people do, you know, they'll take, you know, some verses in chapter two where it talks about, you know, faith without works being dead. And the dispensationalists use that to prove a faith plus works. And since we know it's not faith plus works now, then that means it must be for the tribulation, you know. And man, when you actually study these things, it just it really has you pulling your hair out, you know. And so, um, not, and pulling your hair out not because the passage is difficult, but because these people are just crazy. It's like where does this insanity come from? And so, anyway, let's uh, start out in verse one of James chapter one. Notice what it says: James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Okay? So right here, we see who this is written to and who is it written to. Somebody tell me. The twelve tribes of Israel. Okay? The twelve tribes of Israel. Now, what are you going to do with that? Alright? What are you going to do when a dispensationalist comes along and you, know, you use something to prove your doctrine for the book of James, and then they turn to verse 1 and say, who's that written to? Okay, now we do, as believers, we teach that we are spiritual Israel, right? Okay? But let me ask you, are we one of the twelve tribes? Okay, are we, are we physically of Israel? No. Now, who's this written to? Is it written to those who are of spiritual Israel or physical Israel? I think it's physically Israel. He says the twelve tribes. Okay? Now, this is just a side note. This is just bonus. Next time somebody asks you, when you talk about being spiritual Israel and they ask you what tribe you're from, just tell them Judah. Alright? Because we're in Christ. And Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Alright? Not that it matters. You know, not that your, your tribe matters. Okay? But, if I'm going to claim a tribe, I'm claiming Judah because I am in Christ. So, uh, right there, just that's just a little bonus thing for you. Tell them you're of Judah. So, let's... Let's go ahead and take a look at some things uh, historically in the book of Acts, and it will help clear this up real easy. This is written to the twelve tribes of Israel, okay? But that is not a problem at all, okay? This book still completely applies to us, and I'm going to I'm going to give you a few things. It's just going to uh, when you realize just how simple the answer is to this. You know, if you ever have been duped, you know, by that or been confused, you're gonna be like, that's so obvious. Okay, the solution to this is so obvious. But before I give it to you, I'm gonna leave you hanging for a little bit. Turn to Acts chapter 15. 
What do we do when this is written to the twelve tribes of Israel? And I don't claim to be nationally of Israel. I, I do not claim that. I only claim spiritually. I do claim to be of the tribe of Judah uh, because I'm in Christ. But either way, uh, that's not what that's talking about with, you know, when it's talking about the tribes there. It's not talking spiritually. Okay? But let's go ahead and start reading some things in Acts chapter 15. Okay? It's important that we get this. Now, I don't know that the James that we're reading about here in Acts chapter 15 is the same James uh, that wrote the book of James. I've always kind of thought that it was probably James, the brother of John. But, and, but James, the brother of John, actually died before this all took place. And so keep, keep, all that, keep that in mind. It really doesn't matter which James it is. Okay? If you get, there's really two different arguments you could take with this, and, and neither really matter. If it's the James, the brother of John, you could say, well, the reason he's writing to the 12 tribes is because before James died, they weren't really going to anybody but Israel. Okay, so that's one reason you could say that. But if it's the other James, which I think more people think um, it's the other James, James the Less, as uh, some call it, uh, or James, some people believe it was James the brother of Jesus. If it was him, then I think there's a really good argument you could make you know, to understand some of this when we read Acts chapter 15 and we see some things that James said. But let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1. It says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. The first heresy that tried creeping into the church was a work salvation. And specifically, it was a Judaizing of Christianity. It was them trying to add circumcision as a requirement for salvation. And it says, "...and being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren." This salvation of the Gentiles and the Holy Ghost going to the Gentiles, this was a new thing for them. This was not something they saw coming, even though it was specifically stated by Jesus to go into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature, even though the angels at the birth of Christ be said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. Okay, that you, Because they were so focused on their you know, Jewish mindset, they missed this. Okay? And you say, well, how did they miss that? I'll tell you how they missed it. It's the same way stinking Americans are, you know, miss some things when they have the gall to say that we are in the Laodicean church age because they're lukewarm as if that represents Christianity all over the world. You know, why don't you go tell the Christians being persecuted in China and in some of the, you know, some of the Muslim countries that they're lukewarm Christians? Why don't you tell some of these people that are sitting in prison? Why don't you go tell some of those people that for years were sitting in prisons in places like Russia? I mean, in just recent history for evangelizing, why don't you go tell them that they're lukewarm Christians living in a lukewarm church age? Okay? You know, that's, that's just ridiculous that they would even think that. But Americans are so self-centered on their own culture that they often miss the truth on things. And the Jews were the same way. It's like that. It's like that in many places. I think there's. I think we're exceptionally bad in the United States. All right, we're probably second only to Jews in that, and thinking we're like this master race and stuff like that. But it's just it's ridiculous. But it says in verse four, when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and the apostles and elders, and declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up a certain sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the Gospel and believe. That's interesting. I thought Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. You know, Peter's up here. No, God chose by my mouth to do this. All right. Now later they did commission Paul to go to the Gentiles and Peter the circumcision. Okay, but I believe Peter did both too. You can tell that just from reading First and Second Peter that Peter was going to the Gentiles too. But that was their original plan that they set up in Acts. 
doesn't mean they stuck with that for the rest of their lives. Okay, that's just that that's just ridiculous. But it says God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving the Holy Ghost, even as He did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Our fathers didn't get saved by keeping the law. You know, eat that one, Ruckmanites. Okay? No. Our fathers couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. Why are we going to ask the Gentiles to do it? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for His name. And to this agree the words of the prophets. Hey, we missed it. It was right there. We missed it. But as it is written, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof. And I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom My name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Alright? Let's not put the burden of the law upon them. We couldn't keep it and neither can they. But, you know what? Let's teach them to do some things that are right. Okay, We don't tell people they need to keep the law in order to be saved, but do we not often teach principles from the law so Christians will know how to govern their lives? Is that, do we not preach that? Okay, Is that not a common thing preached throughout churches? Obviously it is. We often go to the Old Testament to prove you shouldn't cross-dress. Okay? That is appropriate. Now, does not cross-dressing mean you're going to go to heaven? Okay? You know, does cross-dressing make you lose your salvation? Alright? You know, that, you know, what if I accidentally put on a girl shirt or something? You know, it's just, you know, we're not going to strive about things like that, okay? But at the same time, we are going to preach against cross-dressing. Okay? We're going to tell people that type of thing is an abomination. You shouldn't do it. They said, Let's not tell them they need to keep the law in order to be saved, but you know what? Let's go ahead and tell them. Let's teach them. Let's command them as a church to abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Now, why? What is one of the reasons that we teach people you know, to live a certain way? All right? there's, now, there's many reasons, but there's one in particular. Okay? One, we want to be a good testimony, right? Okay, not everything that we try to encourage people to do is so they can go to heaven. Okay? Some things are about testimony. Okay? And so now we've got these Gentiles being saved. Now, you need to get this. This is important that you understand this because this helps us put a lot of things into perspective in the Bible. Notice what he says right after he tells them this. He says, For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach Him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. You know why they wanted to command the Gentiles not to do these things? Because, all, remember, the Jews had been scattered all over the world. They'd been scattered all over the world and it would have been a very offensive thing for them if a Gentile you know, who says, hey, you know what, I'm from this church in Corinth or something, and you know, we've we've moved over to this area, and then he goes into a congregation of predominantly Jewish people, and all of a sudden, you know, they see him, you know, eating meat with the blood. You know, they find out he's living in fornication. That is going to offend them big time, isn't it? You know why? Because these Jews who are scattered all over the world, what did they do? They read Moses. You know, every Sabbath day they get together in their synagogues and they're reading the Word of God, they were very familiar with the Scriptures. They knew the Bible very well. In fact, they were kind of like 
Many Baptist churches that you go into today. Have you ever been into one of these Baptist churches where 100% of the people were dressed to the nines? Where 100% of the people are carrying a King James Bible? Where 100% of the people have got their act together? Where 100% of the people in the church have been members of that church for the last 20 years? And then a visitor comes into that church and he sticks out like a sore thumb. Why? Because they're not used they're not used to that lifestyle. They're not used to that way of life. And what often happens in those churches? Everybody looks down on that person. I don't, I don't know if we want these people in our church. I don't know if we want this kind of riffraff in there. And this is a real problem. You know, because you have to, you know, you want to stick by your guns. You want to stay strong in these things, but you also want to be loving and accepting to others too, don't you? And there's a balance there that you've got to figure out. And actually, James deals with that a little bit in chapter 2. I believe is is what he's dealing with, okay? But they bring this up here in Acts because if we've got some Gentiles who are saved just living lawlessly, it's going to be an offense to the Jews that are in these synagogues that many of them are saved, many of them uh, you know have accepted Jesus Christ, but a lot of these things are new to them, and it would be a difficult thing for all of a sudden a Gentile who lives like a Gentile to all of a sudden have all the rights and privileges of the Jews who've been living like Jews. Okay? And so, and it's it's similar too in, in some of these Baptist churches that I'm talking about too where 100% of the people have been there for 20 years. A lot of times they have Christian schools. There's all these rules that are enforced. And they're able to get everybody in the church compliant with all the rules. And then that new family comes that just got saved. And all this is brand new to them, you know. And their girls are in pants, and their guys, you know, their hairs, you know, touching their ears, and you know, they're, you know, they're, you know, the one of them wears a necklace, and there's all these things, and it causes the church to get very uncomfortable. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle it. It's like a Gentile coming into a Jewish church or a Jewish synagogue. Okay, that is a very common thing in churches today. Now the trendies, their solution is. Let's all be like the Gentiles. Okay? That's not the solution. Okay? Solution, let's keep doing what we're supposed to do, but let's give people time to grow. Let's help them. You know, let's bear one another's burdens. And so, um, you know, this is why he tells them that. And, and so, most of all time hath them which preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Okay? I say all that to show you why actually James 1.1 showing that it's written to the 12 tribes actually creates a huge problem for dispensationalists. Because they want to say it's about the Jews. But I'm here today to tell you, no, actually, it's, to, it's not written to every, you know, all Jews or everybody that's from the 12 tribes. It's actually for our saved Jews. Okay? So, let me put it this way. If somebody ever comes up to you and says, now, do you claim the book of James? Are you from one of the 12 tribes of Israel? Then just say no. But then ask them, um, are you from Corinth? Are you a Corinthian? But do you claim the book of Corinthians? Now let me ask you, was Galatians written to all Galatia or to the church in Galatia? It's to the church in Galatia. You know, Corinthians Was it to all Corinthians or to the believers in Corinth? It was to the believers, right? So this book of James, it's not written to just Jews in general or all who are part of the 12 tribes. It's to the saved ones. And let me prove that to you in chapter 2. Look at James chapter 2 and verse 1. Look what it says. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory with respect to persons. Is it clear that they have the faith of Jesus Christ right here? So why in the world would He apply this to just all Jews? Why would He go to the unbelieving Jews that are persecuting them and say, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect to persons? They didn't have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing to saved members of the twelve tribes of Israel and it's exactly the same as when Paul wrote to the saved people in Corinth, Galatia, or Ephesus, wherever it was. It's the exact same thing. 
It's the exact same thing. So that is, this is not a problem for us. Okay? Just like it's not a problem for me when I'm reading Corinthians that I am not from Corinth or a Corinthian, it is not a problem for me when I read the book of James just because it's written to the 12 tribes of Israel and I'm not a part of one of the 12 tribes physically. That's not a problem at all. That, and so that creates a big problem for dispensationalists because they're not consistent about what we should do with this book since it's written to the 12 tribes. Okay? And so it's like, because they, do they not borrow from James all the time? Absolutely they borrow from James. Especially if they're talking about respective persons, they're going to go to James chapter 2. You know, there's many things. In, in fact, I'm going to sh- we're going to see as we go throughout the book of James that, I mean, James is constantly used. There is a model that we're going to see through the book of James. I'll, I'll point some things out to you in a little bit that is practiced constantly in churches today. And rightfully so. Alright? But James is clearly writing to believers. And so just like Paul wasn't writing to all Philippians, just the church, James was only writing to, to the saved Israelites all over the world. That's who he was writing to. So, if, if this book is written to those of Israel who are saved, then that means it doesn't apply to those of Israel who are not saved. Y'all get that? If they're going to say, if I, if I went to dispensation and said, do you believe that the book of Corinthians was to all Corinthians or just the saved ones? You know, they're going to say just the saved ones. Okay? Well then, if this is written to just national Israelites, saved ones, not saved ones, then that shows too there is a difference between saved and lost, even if they're of Israel physically. That's a big, that's a big problem for them, but it's one that they're going to have to deal with. So in the New Testament, we do see that the disciples' main focus early on in the book of Acts was going to Israelites all over the world. Okay, And while the Gentiles were never an afterthought to God, they were an afterthought to the apostles. Okay, That is a fact. But Acts chapter 15, we're not going to go back and read it again, verses 13-21, through when James is speaking, James makes it clear they were not an afterthought to God. This is what all the prophets wrote about. But they missed it. Okay, The Gentiles were an afterthought to the apostles, but not to God. So the book of James, alright, so what is the book of James? Okay, what, what is the theme of the book of James? Because you're going to see, when we go through verse by verse through the chapters, we're going to hit a bunch of subjects. The book of James is one of the books, it's kind of difficult to preach an expository message on it because it changes subjects a lot. It hits a lot of different things. Okay, why is that? What's it doing? Because certain, uh, you know, many of the other epistles they kind of stay a little more focused, especially from chapter to chapter. You'll kind of see a common theme throughout that chapter. But in the book of James, it jumps around and it hits a lot of stuff. Why is that? What is it? Okay, you know, if I was to say, tell me the main theme of the book of James, you're going to have a tough time, you know, coming up with just kind of one theme that you see. Throughout it, all right. So, what is it? Well, I personally believe that the book of James—it's like a series of sermons a typical evangelist would preach during a week-long revival. Okay. Now, we've never had these here, but if you've ever been to an old IFB church, you know you're familiar with revival meetings. And what do they do? They bring in an evangelist, and he'll come, and then they'll have services. Every day for a week. They used to do it from Sunday through Friday all the time. Now Sunday through Wednesday is all almost all they ever do. That's all they can afford. And then by you know people lose interest too fast. Partly because the speakers they just have are lame and boring. But uh, at the same time, when you you know when you go to how many's been to a, a Baptist revival meeting before? All right. So not not everybody in here, but some of you have. Okay. Most of these meetings, you know, just a random revival meeting. They're, most of the sermons are geared towards believers and it's about getting revival back in the church. Okay, They'll usually have a service or two that's geared toward the lost because you, know, you can't have a successful revival meeting without getting some salvations. Okay? And if the sermon geared towards the lost doesn't work, there will be at least one sermon in there 
or they try to convince all the saved people they're not really saved because they still have sinful desires, and then all the church people get resaved again. Uh, but uh, that that is another very common thing, and we've talked about that before. But most of the sermons are things to just kind of fire up the believers, just to remind them about some things. You know, the preacher might get up one night and he might just preach a sermon, a fiery sermon on the love of God, just motivating people to renew their love for God. He might preach a fire-breathing sermon on soul winning, motivating people to just get back to winning the lost. You know, he might preach a message on consecration. Hey, you need to keep your life right. You need to stay clean. You need to have a close walk with God on prayer. All these things. Now, let me ask you, if we have a revival meeting and a guy preaches a sermon one night on soul winning, another one on prayer, another night, consecration, another night, is any of that new stuff to us? No. But you know what it is? It's old stuff that we need to be reminded of. Do we not need to be reminded of those things? Do we not every once in a while just kind of need to get a kick in the pants? All right, and you know what? Sometimes, and I'm not against rival meetings at all. Okay, I'm not against that. Sometimes it's good because you know we learn to just kind of build up a tolerance to things and, and defenses from preachers. And so you you've all heard me preach enough. You kind of know how to just sometimes put walls up and how to you know deal with things. You know how to deflect. And sometimes you need a guy to come along, an outsider. You know, that kind of just hits you at another angle that you weren't ready for. Okay? And that, that's fine. We need that. We absolutely need that. I'm 100% for it. But when you read through the book of James, it is crystal clear he's writing to save people in this book and he's just trying to renew some things with them. He's just hitting a whole bunch of stuff. And, the, and the, this book of James, you know, it was it wasn't to any one particular church. It was written to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. You know, they probably made a whole bunch of copies of this, and they're taking them to the churches or synagogues, you know, all over the place, giving them to people, just like many evangelists. They'll preach a series of sermons in the one church, and then what do they do? They go preach the same one in another church. Okay? Now that's not necessarily wrong for them to do that, okay? In this day and age of the internet, it's, it's, it's creating problems for some evangelists. Okay, I know one big name evangelist, John the Hamblin, a big sword of the Lord guy. Um, he has I've I've been told that he usually tells pastors not to put his sermons online because he preaches those sermons everywhere he goes. But I'm thinking, don't you want your message to get out? Okay, but he doesn't want it to get out before he gets there. Because then they won't need him there and he can't get the love offering. <laughs> you know. But the thing is, if I was these guys, I would, I'd just start a YouTube channel or something. That way I could preach on different stuff. I could have a whole variety of subjects. You know? I could have a whole bunch of things that I could you know, introduce people to. You know, that's what I would do. But some of these guys are just lazy. I mean, there's, there's some of these evangelists. I mean, they pre, you know, and these guys too, they cheat too. They come into a church and they preach a sermon that's just, Awesome. I mean, it's polished. They don't even stutter. They just let it rip. I mean, their outline's all alliterated and perfect. I'm like, man, he preaches so much better than our pastor. But it's like, you know what? You let me preach a sermon a hundred times. By the hundredth time, I'm going to have it down. And I can't tell you how many times I've preached messages and later I'm just like, they did not go over the way I wanted it to go. It's like, I wish I'd have emphasized... You know, I spent more time on this part of the sermon. I wish I'd have been a little clearer here. I mean, I constantly do that. But when you're a pastor, you get one shot. You know, these evangelists, they do it over and over and over again to the point that it's fake. You know, sometimes they even cry in all the same spots. I mean, it's like, and so, you know, that's not, uh, you know, that's not what we're going for. But it was definitely a lot more appropriate back then. When, you know, you're only going to go there one time. You don't have the internet. You don't have television. You don't have any of these things. But the book of James, it is. It's like, he, I believe this was kind of his method of doing like the internet is. He's like, you know what? I don't want to go preach these same series of messages in every one of these churches I go to. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write it down in the book. And I'm going to send it to all these churches because all the churches do need it. And some of these sermons that these evangelists preach, you know, churches need it. They need to hear this. 
So what they need to just do is they just need to produce it, put it out there so everybody can have it, and they need to go back and study their Bible a little more and come and find something else that they can preach. That's what they should do. But that's what James was doing. James was using the best method of that time. That was just sending letters. That was what they had. And then uh, you know, he could go and preach on other things when he's actually among them. He's like, you know, I'm going to give them all these other things. I'm going to, I want them to get fired up before I even get there. And then I can cover some of these other subjects when I'm there in person. But that's what we're seeing right here. So the subjects that we see throughout the book of James, they're clearly geared towards seasoned Christians. Okay, And the subjects of most revival meetings and sermons, they're meant to help strengthen and motivate the church. Right? And that's important. You all are going to need to remember all these things when we're getting into uh, some of the difficult passages in the book of James. Okay? So the subject matter of James are clearly subjects that people who have been saved for a long time need. This is all renewal stuff. He's not teaching a lot of the basics on salvation. He's not doing that. He's teaching typical subjects that we just constantly need to be reminded of as Christians. Things that we already know. And so there's not really one theme in this book. And the subject matter of James, you'll notice too, it's a little deeper. You can even say it's a little more hardcore than many of Paul's epistles. Okay, And I believe there's a couple reasons for this. Okay, Turn over to Galatians chapter 2. Because Paul's teachings, when you read the epistles of Paul... They are a little more basic. They're foundational. They're foundational doctrines because they are written to a brand new generation of believers. Okay, think about that. If you are from Galatia, you're a first generation Christian, aren't you? You are a first, if you're Ephesus, any of these places that Paul wrote to, you are a first generation Christian. You were not raised according to the Word of God. You were not raised. With Old Testament morality, none, you weren't. None of you were. If you were a Gentile during that time, but if you're one of the twelve tribes, do you think James needed to you know, bring up cross-dressing? You know, that wasn't really necessary. You know, did you know James? We don't really see him bringing up about you know husbands loving your wives, you know, treat them as under the, giving honor as under the weaker vessel. You know, children obey your parents, honor your father and mother. He doesn't bring up a lot of those things because if you are from the, one of the 12 tribes and you've been reading Moses every week in the synagogue your whole life, you know all that stuff, don't you? Okay, So he, James is a message of just the renewal of some things that we need. But the Apostle Paul, he teaches a lot more just basic foundational things because he's writing to a different type of people. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14... It says, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Okay? Now, is Paul saying that Jews aren't sinners? Okay? No, he's not saying that they're not sinners or guilty of sin, but is the manner of the Gentiles, is that lifestyle a way a believer should live? Okay. Should we live after the manner of the Gentiles? For example, do we believe that young people ought to shack up for a while before they get married? No. That's what the Gentiles do. That's what our world does. Okay. Our, it, I have been amazed at how many people have come through our church over the years shacking up and don't even know it's a problem. They don't know that that's a problem. Nobody has ever told them this is a sin. This is wrong. Many of these people have been in churches for years and it was never preached against. And then, you know, they come along and they want to talk to me about joining the church and stuff. And I bring up the fact that, hey, um, we've got a problem with the shack up situation. You guys need to get married first. What? You know? What, what's what's wrong with that? Now me, you know, I can't imagine that. But I was not I was raised, you know, like the Jews were raised, being taught that Old Testament morality. Okay? That manner of life is not familiar to me. I didn't have to be taught, you know, not to cuss. 
You know, I didn't need to be taught not to shack up, and you know, I mean, I mean, obviously I was taught those things, but you know, it wasn't something that I, you know, I didn't have to like unlearn a bunch of bad stuff. Okay, it's just, and a lot of these things are just not in my nature. Okay, you know, you don't have to tell me to stay away from alcohol. I don't want to be around alcohol. You don't have to tell me don't go in a casino and encourage. I, I don't, I don't want to go near a casino. There's just things in this world that I am very, very uncomfortable around. It's in my nature because of how I've been raised. But was that the case with any of these Gentiles back then? No. And so Paul, when he's saying he's not saying we were without sin, but it's clear they had a different way of life. He says no. And then after that, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even as we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. You know what Paul was saying right here? And this verse is powerful. He's saying if we seek to be justified by Christ, okay, or he, he, he's saying if we are found to be sinners, then Christ is the minister of sin. So in other words, if all of a sudden we start teaching in our church that you've got to do this and this and this and this to be saved, okay? guess what? None of us are going to be able to do all those things. Because we are all, you know, we're all sinners. We st- still are going to fall short. Therefore, if we're still sinning and saying we're saved, when we're teaching that salvation is by the works of the law, then Christ is the minister of sinners, isn't He? But what is it that we teach? We're saved by grace through faith without the works of the law. Okay? So now, if I mess up, if I eat something that I, you know, that would have gone against the dietary restrictions, if somebody is not circumcised or whatever, Christ isn't the minister of sin, is He? Because salvation is not by the works of the law. And... Peter here, he's kind of being a hypocrite during this time because when he, the Jews weren't around, you know, he's living a normal life. He's not worrying about the, all these ceremonial things and the washings and what he eats. But then whenever the Jews come around, all of a sudden he starts following all those things. And he was a hypocrite. And Paul ends up calling him out for it. But, um, you know, when you re- so when you realize these things, when you realize that, alright, this is a seasoned group of people that James is writing to, it helps us put some things in perspective. Because notice too, in Galatians 2 verse 16, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Okay, now turn over to James chapter 2. So he said right there, a man is not justified by the works of the law. But then, when we get to James chapter 2, notice that it says in verse... uh, Lost my spot. 21. It says, "...was not our Abraham justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar?" And then it says in verse 24, "...ye see then how that by works a man is justified..." and not by faith only. Now, doesn't that seem to contradict what we just read in Galatians chapter 2? Okay, It does seem to on the surface, but here's what you have to realize. Paul and James were talking about two different things. They were covering two completely different subjects, and when you get that, all of a sudden, you kind of see something. Because one thing you've got to understand too about the Bible is... While you know it's all the word of God, God did use human men to pen the scriptures, and some of them, you know, they have they use different terminology. If, for example, there are preachers today that you know that I'm friends with that believe, I mean, probably identical to me on certain doctrines, but they kind of have a different way of teaching it. Okay, have you ever noticed that before? Or maybe, uh, for example, when it comes to Armageddon. Okay, it's very possible. You know, it's very likely you'll hear some of my pastor friends preaching about Armageddon, talking about the Battle of Armageddon and the different details of the Battle of Armageddon. 
You know, you'll, but when you're listening to me, I don't like to call it that. You know, I like to call it the battle of the great name of God Almighty. You know, it doesn't necessarily change doctrine, but we're just kind of, you know, we kind of have a different way. All right? I don't want to distract, you know, from, I think it messes up other things if we call it that. So I try to avoid that. You know, there's certain terminology I work hard to avoid using because I think it kind of sends a wrong message in other areas. It doesn't change the fact that other people are basically, you know, believe the same thing I do. Okay? I can't think of any real good examples of, of that off the top of my head. But sometimes different authors use a different kind of terminology. And so, you, you know, you've got, you, their words aren't necessarily contradicting. They're just talking about two different things. It's like, yeah, but they use the same word. It doesn't matter. They're still talking about two different things. And whenever you just look at the actual subject matter and you look at the context, and when you realize who James is writing to, you'll see why the words themselves in James 2 seem to contradict what Paul's teaching in Galatians 2. But when you look at, but when you read everything, you realize they're actually on two completely different subjects. Okay, if I'm preaching to repentance to lost people, what am I going to be talking about? I'm going to be talking about believing on Jesus Christ, aren't I? If I preach repentance to you, am I talking about the same thing? No. I'm teaching you that you need to get right with God. Am I using the same word? Yes. But am I talking about the same thing? No. Okay? And that is something that we often see in some of the different epistles that are written by different people. They use some of the same words, but they're talking about different subjects. So Galatians 2, James 2, different subjects. Same words, but different subjects. Therefore, there is no contradiction that's in there. So James didn't need to instruct the Israelites on morality. He didn't need to instruct them on the family structure or even on salvation because they already had this down. In fact, it's most, you know, most of the stories that we read in the book of Acts, with the Apostle Paul especially, when he would go and preach to the Jews, it involves, you know, him getting persecuted. Okay? Because that did happen a lot. Those are the main stories that we hear about. But you know what the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about? Are the stories where they just gladly received it. You know, because the story will pretty much consist of, you know, they gladly received it. Nothing dramatic happened. So, there's no, there's really no story there that we refer to very much. But at the same time, there were a lot of those examples. That happened a lot. There were a lot of synagogues in different parts of the world where the people there were reading the Old Testament and they received salvation by faith. They were saved. So whenever the apostles would come along and would preach Jesus to them, introduce the new covenant, introduce this new way, if they were saved, they received it, didn't they? They were definitely going to receive it. And they would receive that gift of the Holy Ghost, which was a new thing that would happen to save people then that we automatically get upon salvation now. But if you were a Jew back then and you were saved, and all of a sudden you know the apostles come along, they preach Jesus Christ, and then you receive that, you didn't get saved and they were already saved, but then they would receive the Holy Ghost. Okay? That is something that was unique to that generation that we don't see today. But, there, so if you're that, let's say we're back in time now, 2,000 years, we are a Jewish synagogue, and let's say we're all saved as a church. If the apostles come, if James comes along and preaches Jesus to us, if we're saved, we're going to accept that. Okay? All of a sudden now we receive the Holy Ghost. Okay? Now, what's going to change, morally speaking? Nothing is. Nothing's going to change. Morally speaking, there's some doctrinal things that they might want to teach us. That's kind of what the book of Hebrews is all about. Maybe some things that are a little confusing we don't understand. How is Jesus a high priest when he's not from Judah? You know, those are all explained there. You know, but at the same time, morally, there's no new things we need to teach. If I was to go preach in, let's say I preached a revival in a Southern Baptist church. There's a lot of Southern Baptists that are saved. Okay? A lot of them. But I would need to introduce a lot of new things to them, wouldn't I? I probably, in that church, I would need to preach a sermon on the inspiration of the Scriptures in the King James Bible. I would probably need to preach a sermon in that church on dress standards. You know, I would probably need to preach a sermon in that church, even if the people are saved, 
on soul winning. There's a lot of things I'm going to need to cover there because there's so much lacking in the Southern Baptist world. Okay, But when it comes to these groups back then, they had the morality stuff down. So what did they need? They needed the same thing that people in independent fundamental Baptist churches need on a regular basis. They need to be renewed on some things. They just need to be reminded of some things. They need to, uh, you know, kind of remember where they came from. They need to just be motivated to work a little harder. They need to be motivated to take that faith like Abraham had, and you know what? Go do some great things. Okay, y'all are in here telling me you have faith. Okay, great. I want to see some works. Okay, show me your faith by your works. Okay, is, is it wrong for me to say that? If, if Brother Lonnie comes and he tells me if I'm going through a difficult financial time, if he tells me, you know what, I believe God can provide for you. Oh, you really you have that faith? Well, you know what? How about you show me your faith by your works? How about you give me a twenty? You know, I mean, I, I, why don't you, why don't you do something with that faith? Now, am I telling him he needs to give me a twenty for salvation? No, but he does need to give me a twenty to prove he has faith. He does need to do works. Faith that God can provide for me. I need to see the works. You have faith that you believe that God's going to do something great in our church. You have the faith that God is going to help us bring revival to this community and get people saved in this community. Great. Well, let me see your works now. Let me see you show up for soul winning. Let me see you go out and tell somebody about Jesus. You believe He can save people? Great. I'm glad you have faith. Now show me your works. Is, would that not be appropriate to preach here? Absolutely. But would I go preach that to lost people? Oh, you're telling me you believe in Christ? Okay. Let me see you go win somebody to Christ. Why would I do that? No, you know what I'm going to tell them when I'm talking to them? What are you professing faith in? What do you think a person has to do to go to heaven? Do you see how those are two different subjects? But the terminology is very similar, isn't it? But when but the the audience, all right, of who they're talking to, that makes all the difference in the world if you want to know what I'm talking about. If you hear that I was out there preaching that a person's faith ought to have works, first question you'd ask, okay, well, who was he talking to? And what was he talking about? When you realize that, if I'm talking to lost people and I'm saying that, that's a problem, especially if I'm talking about salvation. But if I'm talking to saved people and we're talking about doing things for Christ, then that's completely appropriate. Y'all get that? Does that all make sense? And folks, that's what the book of James is. And so when we read through the book of James, we're going to hit a lot of different random subjects. These are just things, all going to be things that we need to constantly be reminded of. And that's why I want to, I want to preach through these on Sunday. I'm not just on Wednesdays. Some of this stuff, I think probably some of the Sunday morning crowd needs to hear it. Why? Because they need to be renewed on some things. But I do all this just as, as kind of intro so you'll kind of see why it's laid out the way it is and why some, um, you know, some things might seem to contradict other things. It all makes sense when you put it all into perspective. And so the book of James is 100% applicable to us today because we as God's people, we're more familiar, we're, we're the ones that are familiar with the Old and New Testament, aren't we? We're familiar with that. Many of us have grown up being taught biblical principles and the book of James is a reminder of some things that we need to strengthen our lives. And, you know, I've heard a lot of preachers tell stories, you know, about how when they got saved, how difficult it was for them when they started going to church because they just started finding out that everything that they liked was wrong. You know, they go to church and the preacher's preaching against rock music one week and then he's preaching. You know, my dad talked about how when he went to a Christian school, you know, the preacher was preaching against rock music. So he got rid of all his rock music. So then he started listening to the country. And then the preacher started preaching about country music, you know. And he had to get rid of his country music. And my dad was, he was from a Christian home, but it was a Southern Baptist home. So they, once again, they, they were missing a lot of things. There was a lot of things they weren't taught. I, I, I've heard other preachers tell these stories. It's, it's fun to listen to those stories, you know. And they'll talk about how they had, they, you know, they started going to church and found out they needed to get a haircut. You know, guys weren't supposed to have long hair. 
You know, that they were supposed to dress a certain way. You know, we've all heard those stories, haven't we? You know what that is? That's basically a Gentile talking about, you know, living like a Jew. You know, living according to those laws of the Old Testament. It was hard for them. It was a shocker for them. You know, it was, it was a shock to their system. And they'll often talk about how people in the church were. You know, how they would kind of look at them as something foreign. That was exactly what went on back in the, in, uh, in the book at the time of Acts when Gentiles are coming into churches. It probably made those Jewish believers very uncomfortable. And so they did. They needed to teach the Gentiles some things. And we often have to kind of take some time and sit down with people and say, hey, listen, we're thankful that you got saved. We are so thankful you're in our church. But you know what? You're not supposed to be shacking up. That's really wicked. Now, you and I were used to that, but that's a shock for a lot of people. Now, we can't just throw that out, but do we not need to be patient with people? Do we not need to show them some kindness on this stuff? Do we not need to give them a little bit of time? You know, some people are shocked and they find out you're not supposed to be drinking. You know, that you're supposed to dress a certain way. That kind of thing is difficult when you're getting for a lot of new believers because they are not used to that lifestyle. But for us, it can be just kind of second nature, isn't it? It is. It's just, it's completely second nature for us. And that's the type of thing they were dealing with in Acts chapter 15. You know, let's not let these Jews get away with Judaizing and try to make the Gentiles think they've got to keep the law in order to be saved. But at the same time, let's not teach the Gentiles to just live recklessly. You know, let's teach them to you know, abstain from certain things because these things are very important and they are very offensive and they, it will hinder the Gospel. It, it, it will, you will be a hindrance to the Gospel if you're saved and you're living in fornication. You will be a hindrance to the Gospel if you're a Catholic and you get saved and you leave your Mary in the bathtub statue outside your house. You're still saved. Okay? An idol is nothing, but will you not be a hindrance to the Gospel? Yes, you will be a hindrance to the Gospel. So you know what we've got to do sometimes? We've got to, we've got to as a church, we need to motivate people on some of these things. And that's one of the things we're doing. So they'll be closer to God. So they'll be a better witness. Be a better Christian. So anyway, that's the intro to the book of James. And looking forward to going through all these things because I do. We've got a lot of good Christians here in our church. But if we're not careful, we'll get stagnant. We'll forget about some of these things. And that's a problem. We can't be doing that. And so think about some of these next messages like a revival meeting. But I'm not, I don't need to bring in a specialist for it. I can preach this stuff myself. So Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your goodness to us. I pray You'll help us to learn from these principles that we see here. And I pray that You'll help us to follow the things that we see in the book of James. Every one of them, Lord. Help us to realize these things do apply to us. It's for us. And help us to learn from them, Lord. I pray You'll help us to be patient with the new converts. and Lord, it is a big adjustment for a lot of people after they get saved. Maybe we've just kind of gotten used to it. But I pray you'll help us to remember uh, what it was like where we came from and help us to be loving and gracious and to help people out and to do it with the right spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.